Amen. Thank you, choir, for that reminder to praise the Lord. Alleluia is a commandment to praise the Lord because he is worthy to receive all of our praises. And thank you, Nate, for that offertory. It's fun to sit where I sit. You can see his hands doing their thing. I wish I could see your feet because that's, that's the real trick is the, uh, the pedals. I, that just blows me away how anybody could do all four things at, at one time. Truly a gift of God. Thank you for leading us to the throne in worship today. Before I get into our last sermon on ministry, this is the last Sunday in our five-month-long series on the purposes of the church. So I want to take a minute before we talk about um, ministry to talk about the purposes of the church and just recap and kind of uh, give an overview of what all five purposes are and what they mean to make sure we're all on the same page. You know, my family and I, we joined the YMCA finally. We moved to Nashville uh, last year. We, we joined the Y. Gary Everton's a board member there at the Y, even though he doesn't go as often, but he's, he's on the board, uh, but uh, he, he encouraged us to join, and we did, and it's a lot of fun, and it's important to be healthy, right? We're trying to exercise, you know, when we can, and, and try to focus on our health, and these days, there's a lot of writing about church health, that it's important for churches to focus on being healthy as well, and I've read lots of articles and blog posts and books on how to be a healthy church, and all of them mention one essential thing, is that churches must know what their purpose is. They must understand what the biblical purpose of church is. Why did God make this thing called the church? Why did he create this body of believers? What is the purpose given in scripture that we are to focus on? Healthy churches know what the purposes of the church are, and they seek to do these basic purposes well with intentionality. So today as we conclude our five-month series, we've been talking about worship. Back in April, Richard preached a wonderful sermon on worship, and we struggled through the music that day. And then we talked about evangelism in May, and then we talked about discipleship in June and fellowship, and now in August we're doing ministry. And you've seen these triangles in our logo, these five triangles that help remind us of these purposes. Worship is the purple triangle that points up, right? And then evangelism uh, is the, the pink triangle that points down. And then you see the discipleship is the blue one pointing back up. And then fellowship is the green one pointing down. And then ministry, again, we, we serve the Lord pointing back up. And now some of you are really smart and clever people. I was thinking about our parenting class today. I think half the room had their doctorate degrees. I was just kind of counting and going around the room thinking, this is a really smart group of people. You might be really wondering, is this true? Where are you getting these five purposes from? Does the Bible actually spell these five purposes out? And I would say, yes, we can clearly observe all five of these purposes in the New Testament for, for the church especially in the book of Acts, but Jesus said that you could really boil down all of the Bible into two basic commandments, right? Into the first one, the, the Shema, right? Which is love God. And then the second one is like it, to love our neighbor. Look at Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Barbara Voller preached a great little children's message over here about these two great commandments. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Two great commandments that summarize the Hebrew scriptures. But Jesus didn't leave us with just these two commandments, did he? Before he ascended back into heaven, he gave us another great commandment. You may know it as the great commission. Matthew 28, 19 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In his classic book, The Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback, 50,000 members out in California and Orange County, he says that a great commitment to the great commandments and to the great commission will grow a great church. I think that's true. A great commitment to the great commandments and to the great commission will grow a great church. I think that's true because all five purposes can be clearly observed in these two great commandments and in the great commission. Let me show you. I think Mark already showed us some, that's okay. So first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The Shema, the most important commandment. What does that sound like? Worship, yes. We were created for a love relationship with God Almighty, expressed in worship, laying down our lives on the altar as a living sacrifice is our spiritual act of worship in response to all that God's done for us. It's our primary purpose as as human beings, as the people of God, to bring honor and glory and majesty to the one who is ultimately most worthy to receive it, to God Almighty, the triune God of creation. Next, all month long, this, this month, we've been talking about how to love our neighbor. Well, Calvin Dunham got me one of those cool Room in the Inn t-shirts that says, love your neighbor, y'all. Have you seen those? Those are, those are awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about that shirt. We've been talking about ministry, right? Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's ministry, meeting the needs and healing the hurts of whomever the Lord may put in our path each and every day. So worship and ministry can clearly be seen in the two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Worship, ministry. What else do we see in the great commission then? Jesus told us to go and make disciples. What does that sound like? Evangelism, right? To go and make disciples of all nations. Everyone of God's people is called to invite others into God's best for them. And remember that evangelism is not just a gift, it's a calling for all of us as God's people to seek to invite others into God's plan for them so that they can flourish and live the abundant life that God came to bring them by living and dying and rising for them. And once people have become followers of Jesus, he then tells us to do what? To baptize these new disciples. Baptize them into what? Into fellowship of the church. Baptism isn't magic, right? We, we do believe, however, that it's a powerful display of, a, it's an, an outward reality of an inward reality, right? An outward symbol of what's happened in your heart, that you've died to yourself and been raised into a whole new life of community with the body of Christ. Baptism is a picture of joining yourself into the fellowship of the body of Christ. 
That's why we at Woodmont Baptist Church believe that in, in order to become a member of the church, that you, you need to be baptized to show your death and your new resurrection into the new community of God's people. Baptism brings us into the church because Christianity is a team sport. It takes all of us pulling together, locking arms, functioning as one body. If we're going to do these purposes well, we have to have koinonia fellowship. We need our family of faith. You know, this Dunn family that's so close and, and such a big family. I want Woodmont to have that same feel where we work together to love each other and bring each other up and encourage one another. And then finally, uh, what does Jesus say after we baptize them? We are to do what? We are to teach them to obey. That's what discipleship is all about. Learning more and more how to obey Jesus more and more faithfully each and every day as we become conformed to his image. That's what discipleship's all about. So you got love God, that's worship. Love your neighbor, that's ministry. Make disciples, that's evangelism. Baptizing them, that's fellowship. Teach them to obey discipleship. All five purposes in the great commandments and in the great commission. Again, I really believe that if we do these things well and with intentionality, that we will grow into the kind of church that Jesus Christ died to make us into. All right, that's enough about the purposes. Let's talk about ministry now this morning. To close our series on ministry, I thought it was going to be absolutely essential that we look to the author of Christian ministry himself, Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of what it looks like to minister to others. We've been saying how each and every Christian is called to ministry, just like we're all called to evangelism and discipleship. We're called to minister. We're called to love our neighbors in radical, selfless ways, just like the Good Samaritan cared for the man on the side of the road. Last week, we saw how ministry is actually a litmus test for whether the love of God resides in us or not. If you truly love God, and if the love of God lives in you, 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says that you will meet the needs of others when you encounter them. So if we're really going to examine what Christian ministry is about, we need to study the example that Jesus set for us in Scripture. So let's stand this morning, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word. As we read our text from Luke chapter 4, verses 13 through 30. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout, through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, <coughs> excuse me, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. This is such a a powerful uh, text of Scripture. The weight of what Jesus is doing here is immense. This passage marks a a turning point, not only in the ministry of Jesus, but in the whole narrative of everything ever that we see in Scripture. Jesus is proclaiming a messianic promise has been fulfilled right in their midst, in their own hearing. Biblical scholars refer to this passage as the beginning of Jesus' what? Ministry. So as we all know, a strong start is very important. Jesus had been baptized at the age of 30 after being apprenticed to his dad as as a carpenter and then studying Hebrew school as a rabbi. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan and then he set off into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and and spiritual warfare as Satan came to tempt him in the desert. It was a time of spiritual preparation for the ministry that he's about to begin here in Galilee. So out in the desert, you know, Jesus puts Satan in his place over and over again. Every time Satan comes at him with a temptation, Jesus rebukes him using the holy words of Scripture of sacred scripture to put him in his place. Excuse me. And verse 14 tells us that we just read that Jesus was led out into the desert by the Spirit, and now he's led by the Spirit into his hometown area of Galilee. Jesus had been in Jerusalem prior to this with with John the Baptist and and the other new converts, and then out in the desert uh, doing that ministry with John the Baptist, now he returns home. After his time of preparation, he goes back to his hometown area. It'd be like me coming back to Middle Tennessee, where I'm from, or like Morgan going to Southeast Tennessee, or Trey, where where he's from, Chattanooga area. He was the same person that grew up there in Galilee, but he was also very different. During his baptism, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, And a voice from heaven proclaimed, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Everything's changed about him. We're told in verse 15 that Jesus was glorified by all. 
We're told that his reputation was spreading throughout Galilee. Why? We're not told yet in the narrative that he's been doing any miracles. What has he accomplished that his reputation would spread through Galilee? Well, all he'd been doing was teaching in the synagogues, as was his custom. He'd go to a town, and he would go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he would read from the scriptures and proclaim the truth of God's will. But when Jesus taught from the scriptures, he was actually fulfilling scripture. He spoke with the authority of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit in him, professing the truth of God's plan for the world. So he heads to his hometown, Nazareth, which is the actual little town that he grew up in, and he goes to the local house of worship, which is the the Jewish synagogue, and as a visiting rabbi, he's invited to come up and give the lesson. I'm not going to invite anybody here who's a preacher to come up. I already got this one today. Usually in the, the synagogue services, they, they began with a word of, you know, some prayers. They would read from the Psalms and worship, and then they would have three lessons. They would have a lesson from the law, they would have a lesson from the, the prophets, and then they would have a lesson from the writings of the, the Psalms or the Proverbs or the other history books uh, in the Old Testament. So Jesus is invited to give the prophets lesson, and he stands up, it says, in honor of God's word. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah. It's, it's a huge book, right? 66 chapters. They hand him this massive scroll, like, let's see what you got, hometown boy. Let's see what all your fancy rabbi learning, all your training, let's see what you're going to do with this Isaiah. It's a notoriously difficult book to interpret and to understand. Commentators have struggled to keep commentaries of Isaiah down to one volume. You usually have to split it into two or three volumes. It's such a massive work. So Jesus turns to the end of Isaiah, chapter 61, which is, of course, a messianic prophecy about the one who is to come to bring healing, to release the captives, to bring freedom, true freedom. And he just reads two two short verses, one and a half verse, really. And then he rolls up the big scroll and he sits down. They would preach sitting down, these rabbis. He sits down and it says all eyes were on him. Everybody's waiting. Let's see what he's going to say about this. And he gives the shortest sermon ever, right? One little sentence. All he says is... You know, these people are wondering, what's he going to say? Is he going to agree with this school of thought? Is he going to agree with Rabbi Hillel on how he interprets the, the receiving of the, of the sight to the blind? Is he going to see that as literal or symbolic? Is he going to agree with Rabbi Shammai on the, the opening of the prisons that, that, that it's a, about exile? Or is it about local prisons, you know? What's he going to say about all this? How's he going to interpret these things? And he takes a deep breath and he just says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they love it. The crowd goes wild. I know you all appreciate a nice, concise sermon, but they they really are astonished. They marvel. They're used to hearing these smart rabbis show off their fancy learning and talk about all these different schools of thought, but Jesus just says, it's done. I've done it. I'm he who this is speaking of. I'm here. They're like, wow, this guy's special. This is really something neat. Is this really Joseph and Mary's boy? Is this the quiet kid who was just kind of headed on that path of being a lowly carpenter like his daddy? Is that really Jesus who's proclaiming to, to fulfill Scripture? But it's important to see 
that although these people marveled and although they wondered and they were astonished, it doesn't say that they believed. It doesn't say that they accepted or appreciated the implications of what Jesus is saying here, that the Messiah has come to do these things that Isaiah said he would do. And of course, Jesus knows that. They just think that he's somehow now become a clever speaker through his rabbinical studies. And most preachers would be content to bask in the awe and the the wonder of these people that they're lavishing on him, but Jesus shuts it down. He exposes their mistake. He, He shows them that he knows that they don't actually believe. He knows that what they're really looking for him to do or kind of fulfill these rumors about the work that he may or may not have done in Capernaum. They want magic tricks. They want to see fireworks. They want to see smoke and mirrors that will convince them that this is really something special. They want proof. But Jesus shows them that apart from faith, apart from their understanding of God's work in their lives and believing and trusting in that, they will never see the amazing work of God that Isaiah talked about. He points out how in the ministries of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, that apart from faith, there were so many needy people in Israel at that time, and they were in the backyard of these prophets in Israel, and all these people missed out on God's perfect provision, on God's miraculous power, because they didn't believe God's message. They rejected God's prophets. So he sent them to foreigners instead in both of those cases. And that just makes the people of Nazareth lose it. Who are you, local boy, to come in and tell us that we're outside of God's will? Who are you? You're just a carpenter's son. We know you. You're going to sit here and accuse us of rejecting God's message just like the widow's in Israel did, just like the the lepers in Israel did back in Elijah and Elisha's time, what, what Jesus is really saying to them is, because you are not believing, you are cut off from the covenant promises of God that lead to salvation. What he's saying is, you're going to hell. You're hell bound. You are receiving death because you have not believed God's message of truth and goodness, and you've rejected it. So that's a pretty harsh thing to say. So they get into a fury, and they form a lynch mob. They grab Jesus, and they drag him out of the synagogue, and they they try to throw him off a cliff, probably in order to execute him by stoning. They're going to hurl rocks at him until he's dead at the bottom of this cliff. And what's incredible here is right after these people are wanting a miracle, right, Right after that, Jesus actually does one. (laughs) He passes through their midst undetected because it was not yet his time. They didn't see the miracle because they were too busy trying to kill him. So what does all that have to do with ministry? I I want to point out just three keys that we see here in how Jesus begins his ministry that we should also strive for in the way that we seek to meet the needs of others as they present themselves to us in this world. I I don't usually do multi-point sermons, but if you want to take notes and write these down, three things that I see here that are important for our ministry as well. First, Jesus ministers in the Spirit. 
Luke chapter 3, verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. This is not symbolic. This is literal. In bodily form like a dove. Then a few verses later, right before his temptation in the wilderness, chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then we just read in Luke 14, uh, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The power of the Spirit. And a report about him went throughout the surrounding country. Everything Jesus does, all of his ministry, is guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit in him. He was completely filled with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in him. So what does being Spirit-filled have to do with ministry? Well, let me make a connection for you. All month long, we've been saying that love must be the impetus for ministry. The Good Samaritan was moved by loving compassion and he ministered to the needs of the guy on the side of the road. All true Christian ministry has to have agape love as its motivating factor. And so people have asked me on our sermon listening team, how? How can we love like God loves? How can we love our neighbor as ourself? How can we put others' needs before our own? How can we love with that kind of agape love? Well, it's right here by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Romans 5, 5 says, hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love, God's agape has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You can't love like God loves apart from God. God's Spirit in you is what creates the ability to love in radical, life-changing ways. And as Christians, we believe that when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, and when we re repent of our sins, and when we die to ourselves and buried with Christ in, in death, and when we're raised to a whole new kind of life, we, we believe that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive spiritual gifts that are cultivated in us. God comes, we believe, to live inside of us, making us new from the inside out, renewing us inwardly day by day. That's how ministry gets done, through the Holy Spirit living in us. I'm glad we sang all those Holy Spirit songs today, Richard. It's a, a great point of how we are able to be filled with God's love through the Spirit then we're able to meet the needs and heal the hurts of others whom we encounter during our daily walk. Second point, Jesus ministers in the word. He starts his ministry, I think this is very intentional of Jesus, with the word of God. I don't know how to preach any other way than with starting with scripture. I'm, I'm gonna, I've had people complain about it and say, you're just, you're just using scripture and kind of going through it verse by verse. I'm like, yeah, that's all I know how to do. I don't have anything of my own. I can't bring you anything clever enough to change your life. But what I can do is offer the word of God to you that changes us from the inside out. 
Jesus starts with the word of God. That's how he begins his ministry. He preaches. He uses words to show people the truth of the scriptures, God's written revelation to his people. What a gift. You know, I've heard people say, uh, you know, they quote St. Francis of Assisi. You know, Francis loved animals. I love animals. I, I have a dog. I'm a big animal lover. And, and they say, Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? I've heard people quote that. It's actually not true. <laughs> Francis never said that. He never said anything like that. There is a little rule that's in one of his books that sort of, if you twist it, could sort of say that. But scholars say there's nowhere in the writings or in the quotations of St. Francis of Assisi is that phrase ever mentioned. It's not a historical quote. But the main problem with that is that it's not accurate. <laughs> Ministry must involve both word and deed. It must begin with truth of Scripture and that leads to action, right? Our ministry must be more than just random acts of kindness. That's great for the secular world. That's fine, but that's not ministry, is it? Our acts of kindness are not random at all. The Good Samaritan didn't randomly encounter that guy. It was God's plan for him to be there and meet those needs. Everyone we encounter is not a random coincidence. It's part of God's plan when we are able to meet someone's need. Ministry must be informed by the truth of Scripture. It must be rooted in the gospel. It must be an overflow of the goodness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. Jesus proclaimed that Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 61 of a day when the poor would receive good news, it says. You know what that means? Gospel. It means they would receive euangelion, good message, good news. The good news had come, he said. It's been fulfilled. The gospel is here. That good news leads to all kinds of human flourishing and abundant life. The blind receive their sight. The prisoners return from exile and are set free. The oppressed receive liberty. When we do ministry because it makes us feel good or because we think it's going to earn us points with God or because we're trying to impress someone. I was on a mission trip with a pretty girl named Morgan when I was in college and I was trying to show her what a good worker I was so maybe she would go out with me and I guess it worked. But, uh, you know, it, whenever we do ministry for these reasons, it's not ministry. It's not ministry at that point. People who've been captivated by the gospel people who love the truth of God's word, people who stand on the foundation of scripture, those are the people who are really ministering, right? When we treat the least of those as if they were Christ himself, we are acting in accordance with God's word. We must be informed by God's word. The last thing, point three, is that we see that Jesus ministers in God's will. He is faithful to go where God leads him. It says he is led by the power of the Spirit. He's faithful to be a part of what God is doing, to proclaim the message that God gives him. All Jesus is doing here is simply joining himself to where God is already working, and we should do the same. Henry Blackaby's famous Bible study, Experiencing God, is all about this concept. Find where God is moving and join him in it. 
Our ministry should just be a small part of what God is already doing in bringing about this fallen world back into himself. The widows and the lepers of Israel rejected God's working around them. He sent them Elijah. He sent them Elisha, and they said, no, 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 can't be. They refused to accept the will of God in their lives. Jesus shows us here that God works in ways that we could never have thought of. It's easier, of course, for us to expect, you know, amazing things from a stranger, but it's, it's hard sometimes to see God moving in people that we see every day, people that we've known all our lives, people who grew up in the same town we grew up in. That's why a prophet can't minister in his own hometown, right? But maybe God's moving in your spouse's life today, and he wants you to be a part of it. Maybe God is moving in, in your friend's heart, and he's calling you to to start praying with your friend weekly, like, like Dewey did with his friend Larry for over 40 years now on Thursday mornings here at Woodmont Baptist Church, praying for each other as friends for 40 years. Maybe God's calling you to be a part of someone in your own home and what he's doing in their lives today. So if we're gonna get ministry right, let's follow Jesus' example and do these three things. Let's minister in the spirit led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. Let's minister in the Word, informed by the truth of Scripture, standing on the foundation of Scripture, not randomly acting, but acting in accordance last with God's will, faithfully going where He's going, joining Him in what He's already doing. If we're going to start our ministry with these three fundamentals that Jesus lays for us, I believe we will see God do things through our church that we could not have ever imagined he would do. No one could have expected the things that God wants to do through this church and through the ministry in the word and the spirit and in God's will. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you show us with the example of Jesus Christ how you would have us to minister to others. God, thank you for giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we don't have to figure out things on our own. We don't have to rely on our own strength or our own power or our own discernment, but that we can minister empowered, inspired, compelled by your Holy Spirit living in us. God, that's an amazing thing. I pray that we would not squelch the Spirit, but fan the Spirit into flame that is within us, that you have placed in us. I know many of us have grown cold to the, the call of the Spirit in our lives. I pray that you would just kindle that, that spark, ignite the fire in us again to be moved by your Holy Spirit. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us in written form that shows us the example of Jesus, that shows us your will and your plan and the story of everything ever. And God, finally, I thank you for your work around us. You are already doing incredible things in Green Hills, in Nashville, in Tennessee, and in the world. We just want to be a part of it, God. We just want to be a part of it. Our ministry will not be substantial. It will not be significant unless it is only a part of what you're already doing. So we just ask that you would let us join you, God. Help us to, to be a part of what you are up to. Tune our hearts to not only sing your praise, but to do your work as well as we seek to meet the needs and heal the hurts of those around us. 
Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. On Christ the solid rock we stand. We're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation. If you have never become a Christian, if you've never, let's go ahead and stand now. If you've never become a Christian and you are feeling God's pull on your heart today, uh, you know, we talked to these kids, all three of these young children who said the Holy Spirit was burning in their hearts. If you feel that today, I invite you to come forward and talk to me about what it means to become a Christian and die to yourself and be raised into a whole new kind of life. Maybe you are doing Christianity on your own and you heard me say it's a team sport. You want fellowship. You want to be a part of what God's doing here at Woodmont and you want to join this church. I'd love to talk with you right now about baptism and about fellowship and about what it means to become a member of this church. Maybe uh, you just want to come pray at the altar here. I'm going to invite Brad, I'm going to invite Trey and Jan, if y'all will come forward. Uh, if you want to pray with somebody, these are people that I trust and have prayed with many times that I love. And if you just want to come kneel at the altar and pray as well, it'll be open. Uh, whatever is on your heart today, don't leave this place without dealing with God himself as we sing on Christ the Solid Rock. Let's sing.